We have more rain in the wrong places and less snow where there used to be. Extreme droughts are putting pressure on water supplies, livestock, and crops. The increase in heat is seeing insect populations become very hard to control over summer. This is because it's not in cold in places as it used to be, so the insect populations aren't completely dying off, meaning that insects can decimate a crop the way it never used to before. Also, while central bankers may be patting themselves on the back for bringing down inflation, food price inflation isn't falling anytime soon, and this is for factors completely beyond central bankers' control. I'm Shay Russell and welcome to Cocktails and Commodities, the resource podcast where macro analysis meets mining insights. Before we move on, hit that like button so you never miss an update and don't forget that all information in today's podcast is general in nature and not financial advice. Joining me today is Sean Mod from Mod Co Capital. I'll be honest, today is a pretty meaty conversation and that's why I've broken it up into two parts. Is Russia likely to open up the Black Sea again? Will the Ukraine switch from wheat to sunflower seed this planting season? And what does that mean for global wheat supplies? Why are tea prices rising? And how did two commodity observers end up talking about orange juice futures? I'm going to throw over to Sean now to get started. G'day, Sean. How are you, mate? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well, Shay. It's uh, been a bit of a struggle getting my son to bed, uh, first day of school and all that trouble that it brings with it. But uh, yeah, we're, we're hanging in there. We're hanging no, in I there for the best. I so. can't believe it's the first day of school in the US. Now, for yes. some context, I guess the best way to put this is two Aussies walked into a bar or at least uh, we were on uh, the cruise for attendees at Rick Rules Conference back in uh, July 2023 and uh, one Aussie said, oh, you're an Aussie. Wait, I know another Aussie. Uh, you two should meet. And I think two hours later, a few bogan jokes, you and I were firm friends. Correct, correct, exactly. Exactly. Aside from wanting to bond over oceans, there is actually a purpose on why I am bringing you to uh, Cocktails and Commodities, and that's not just because you stole my podcast name. Sean, you are actually an agricultural commodities trader. So can you give everybody a little bit of background about how you, this boy from Australia ended up in New Jersey trading eggs? So um, I'm going to give an answer, but I'm a little concerned and I'm sort of like fully aware about how my friends and family, if they're watching this, they're going to think I'm a wanker for answering this way. <laughs> but in, in full honesty... Um, the way I got to where I am now was really a mission and, and a purpose, right? I mean, it sounds wanky. Uh, so the mission was was my old man was a carpenter and he, he was a pom and he came out to Australia in the 70s and from basically when he landed right up until like 1990, he just had like nonstop work. Uh, and his motto was, you know, work hard, that's how you get financial security. Never trust financial institutions. Don't touch Wall Street with a 10-foot pole. And then lo and behold, like he built up a company with like 30 carpenters and my brother and I were going to inherit it, much to the chagrin of, because uh, I've got three sisters, so it was called Specialised Carpentry and Sons, and he had three <laughs> bloody daughters. Uh, they just, you know, right off. Um, so, yeah, so then the recession came along, completely wiped him out, and I was like, well, hang on a minute. What went wrong here, right? Because how is it that you can, you know, bust your butt off, 
do everything you're supposed to do and then something completely outside of your control could come and wipe it completely out. So that got me interested in looking at economic cycles and what causes recessions to happen, what causes an economic boom, what causes economic recession and vice versa. And that's sort of how I found commodities and the integral role that's played in those economic cycle. Fast forward many years later, like after I was studying all the commodity markets and learning about the fundamentals and stuff, I had someone say to me, they said, well, look, if you want to be a commodity trader and advisor, if you don't have Wall Street experience, you're not going to make it. And so I was like, that's where my seven-year-old came out. And I was like, well, up your bum, Charlie, because I'm going to bloody well do it. (laughs) And so that's exactly what I did. Uh, So here I am today. So... And that's where I found is, is basically matching the two. That's how I got in the commodity trading market as sort of a way to, you know, um, look at economic cycles and sort of how to protect your portfolio from risk, etc. Let's yeah. start with the, the concept of um, agriculture within commodities because mm-hmm. uh, generally when you mention commodities, people think of things like coal and iron ore and gold, but commodities actually includes more than what just comes out of the ground. That's pretty much resources. Commodities yep. includes agriculture and that's everything that feeds us and clothes us. Correct. Correct. So I guess my question is, do commodities or agriculture commodities in this context, do they trade differently to resources? Yeah, they do. In some respects, they do. But let me sort of start where they trade the same. Um, yep. In terms of the influence of currency, that's sort of like the granddaddy of them all. You know, how strong or weak a particular currency is, like let's say the US dollar. Uh, that's going to influence commodities, whether it's energies, metals, or agriculture. Uh, And then, but I think probably two of the biggest differences is one is weather, but I should say there's a a major caveat uh, when I say weather influences agriculture, ag commodities more than energy, uh, and that's natural gas. Uh, because natural gas, which I call like the widow maker, you've really, really, really got to know weather. You've really got to know weather to trade natural gas because it relies on two main parts of the year, which is the summer and the winter, i.e. what is the demand going to be for air conditioning or what is the demand going to be for heat. Uh, but absent those two seasons and particularly what we're seeing at the moment is weather is playing an outsized role in the ag commodity space. Um, and then just another thing too is, is like if you think of like copper or oil or gold, silver, any of the metals, or any of the energies, you can basically extract that resource, keep it stored somewhere, and it's good. However, when it comes to grains, especially, or even meat, even in um, cold storage, there is a shelf life that after a certain amount of time, the quality of like, let's say wheat um, is gonna deteriorate from being a food quality set for human consumption to uh, animal feed, which is gonna pay a lot less. And that partially explains why Russia was far more, uh, 
you know, receptive to this idea of the Black Sea grain deal last year was, was because they had such a huge bumper crop of wheat. They needed to move that, uh, being short of cash, uh, as opposed to the natural gas and oil. It's just like, we shut off the pipes, who cares? Uh, wheat, it's piling up outside the silos. They've got to move it. They've got to move it. So, yeah. Um, so that's probably how agricultural commodities uh, sort of differ from the other the resource, other resources like the metals and the energies, as you, as you mentioned, Shay. Now, part of the reason why we bonded uh, is that I actually believe, you know, you and I started uh – Social, uh, social media content or content around commodities at the same time. And, you know, there's that saying, great minds think alike, or, you know, simple minds never differ. But I think what we're trying to get to is that we spy the fact that our commodities are central to our markets, and yet mm -hmm. there's not a lot of great information out there. Now, great. you, I have cocktails and commodities, but you've gone and developed cooking with commodities. Yes, uh, yes. Now, your videos, I've seen them on LinkedIn. They are a lot of fun. Tell me, what is cooking and commodities all about? Yeah, so cooking with commodities is basically a way to sort of demystify the commodity market. Um, and primarily, there's two purposes behind it. One is education, because particularly in the last two years, uh, if you speak to like nine out of ten people, most of them would say that the reason they're paying so much for like, oh, here, I've got it right here, you know, they're paying for bread and, and coffee and, and, and sugar or meat, I've got some in the fridge, um, bacon, um, you name it. The reason why is because the government's been printing too much money. Um, yep. And the problem with that is that's not true. The problem with these agricultural commodities is they're a supply issue. There's certain influences impacting those commodity markets that explain the reason why prices have increased. So I'll give you a perfect example. Back in 2014, where we had porcine epidemic diarrhea affect the pig herd, we had bacon prices completely shoot up and pork prices shoot up too. Nothing to do, inflation was still hovering around at the Fed target rate. Um, same thing we were facing with orange juice. So the, the problem is, is because it's all happened at the same time, it's all become conflated that it's, well, it's because the money printing, the stimulus, the Build America, Buy America Act, the COVID stimulus, all the trillions of dollars being printed, that's why we've got the inflation. And I'm not saying that hasn't contributed, but to say that it's the sole reason, even if you eliminated all that printed of the money, when you have supply inflation, which I think because of COVID, um, the body blow that that did to the supply chain is we're, st we're still reeling from those effects. And then also, I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, get political as well, like the the, the trade barriers uh, that China are in place on like Australian coal or yep. barley, um, that had a knock-on effect and then the supply logistics. So I hope I answered what? that question well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you actually certainly did. And I think basically the point that you're trying to make is the fact that if you – it's really easy to blame a villain that you'll never get put in front of. It's because, and it's also to a lot simpler to blame the government. It's a lot harder to understand the nuances of agriculture because there are so many parts to the chain. Um, mm -hmm. I'm assuming as well that fertilizer prices going up, 
you know, the price of phosphate, the price of gas, the price of uh, urea and ammonia, these have all had flow-on effects into ag prices. Correct, correct. And so that's a very good question, um, Shay, or sorry, I should say a very good statement as well, is is how you have a bleeding effect of some of the other commodities, like particularly the energy prices, right? So when you're looking at ag, you've also got to look at uh, crude oil and natural gas, not only because of transportation input costs, but also because of fertiliser, uh, natural gas being a feedstock for the fertiliser, and that's played a big role as well. And, and something I forgot to mention when you mentioned about the cooking of commodities too, so, so rather than just painting a problem, I'm also trying to show there's there's a solution as well um, in terms of how you can hedge a portfolio uh, by using commodities, which is sort of got, and I understand why they do it, because uh, it's the same way like lawyers use fancy Latin terms to bamboozle their clients, like, you know, res ipsa liquidator and prima facie, uh, you know, like the financial industry has done this job of just basically calling it like a derivative and yep. made it sound mysterious and, 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 and mystical where it's they're just trying to basically make it sound more complicated than it needs to be. So I should be clear by saying that, you know, commodities are simple because demand and supply uh, the trading, on the other hand, that's, that's, that's not simple. That, that is difficult. And it's got a lot of challenges with it as well. Now, something uh, I think you and I, again, this is a lot of, I've made jokes about stealing my work and I clearly, even though I'm not an ag trader, was two weeks ahead of the curve here. But <laughs> it goes to show, um, I think there's a lot of pop culture references that have impacted both you and I for throughout our career. Yes. Let's talk about yes. orange juice futures. Now, surprisingly... Yes. For cocktails and commodities, of all the things I thought I was going to kick off this podcast with, I never actually thought it was going to be orange juice futures. But because of my age, I'm on the other side of 40, um, the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking of orange juice is the movie Trading Places, which came out in the 80s. Now, through both our social media works, you and I have made reference to this. Tell me, given uh, that you're a little bit closer to orange juice futures and what's driving up the price of orange juice in uh, for the economy – Tell me, is it coming down anytime soon? Um, so based on what was reported last week, unlikely. Uh, you know, and, and I don't mind saying that right now. Like based on the information we have on hand today, August 31st, 2023, it, it's unlikely. And the reason I say that is because what has primarily driven orange juice futures so high is a, um, a disease known as greening, citrus greening, which is yep. passed by an infected insect. And so even though it's basically riddled the Florida orange groves, which also has been compounded by the fact that they had hurricanes last year and now they've got the hurricane. I forget what the name is this year. That's bad. I mean, it's like a, a dahlia. I've read it, but I haven't heard it pronounced. I oh, yes. Watched, you know, I, I need to say. I watch TV. I, I need watch, a safe I, I read place it, to pronounce words I've never heard. Yeah, so it's a, a dahlia. Whatever it is, there's, there's, a, there's a big hurricane, a cyclone, excuse me, cyclone, <laughs> hurricane, hitting hit, hit right now. I just, I just did the translation for the Aussie audience. Um, hit, but that's not really what's 
pushing the needle right now is a lot of hope was based on that Brazil was going to mm -hmm. come and save the day with their orange groves. The problem now is what was reported last week is that this same citrus greening has now jumped up to 38% of their uh, orange growth production. So the same issues facing Florida, which, by the way, it's, 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 I mean, to sort of give you, I think numbers really, really help tell the picture here. So at its peak, orange production was about 266 million boxes. Florida's Citrus Association is now saying they're going to produce 16 million boxes. So that gives you an idea. Yeah, I mean, that, that is just horrendous, horrendous. And, yes, you know, there's a very health-conscious consumer. Orange juice isn't as popular as it used to be. But to say that it's completely gone from 266 to 16 million, is completely unheard of. And so then the hope was that Brazil was going to be able to step into the fray, fill some of that gap. Um, but now Brazil's encountering the same issue that Florida is. And it's basically, it's, it's growing. So hopefully it, it, it doesn't lead to the same issues that Florida is now facing. Um, oh, there's actually a really good topic in there that I do want to come back to. And the reason why I want to come back mm -hmm. to it is I was really hoping I'd have my facts and figures in front of me before I throw the question out. Um, so I'm, I'm going to come back to the, 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 the greening, the citrus greening. Thanks. Cause I've actually seen yep. the, um, scientific name for citrus greening and I can't pronounce it to save myself. No, neither can um, I. So I wasn't going to try and show off and be like, blah, 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 <laughs> and sound like a bleak moron. So. I thought you were going to say it and I'm like, oh, good. That'll be the first time I've heard it said out loud. Yeah. So nah, citrus greening. Gonna, yeah. I, can, I can read it, but I can't pronounce yep. it. So. Say. There's so many people talk about commodities. Not that enough people talk about it. So you can hear it and go, oh, that's how you pronounce it. And, and this is the problem. Nobody's coming out and saying the scientific name of citrus greening on CNN. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to the citrus greening because it does, I think, play an important part on something we want to talk about in the second half of today's conversation. But before mm -hmm. we go forward, let's go through a couple of actual prices that are moving. Uh, and it's one of those things that I'm starting to worry if as consumers, we should be alarmed. Now, first and foremost, I'm not a tea drinker. I have a horrific caffeine addiction. Um, but I've noticed that the tea price seems to be seeing these enormous spikes higher and then enormous price um, price falls. Tell me, why is the tea, why are tea prices all over the place right now? Like, is this normal or is this just reflecting um, weather patterns from a year ago? Yeah, so it's, it's actually, and, you know, this is probably going to be subject to a lot of criticism because I know there is a lot of unwarranted criticism towards the role that speculators play in the marketplace. Uh, yeah. And that's not unheard of. I mean, that's been around since before the French Revolution was, you know, people hoarding, allegedly speculating and so on and so forth. Uh, but part of the problem is that there is no tea tradable futures contract whereby based on market conditions um, buyers and sellers can sort of set a price based on the information that they know at the time and where they think things are going to be and for the longest time um, tea production was very very predictable and it was always in a surplus but now once again with COVID where you've had labour issues, uh, transportation issues, 
and and the, and the one thing to know about tea as well is is you can't replace a lack of labor supply with mechanized infrastructure because a lot of this tea grows on the slopes of mountains and we just haven't yet worked out machinery that can not topple over well picking the leaves so needs Tea also needs to be buried quite deep, doesn't it? Correct. So it needs a certain correct. type of soil, so it can't even just be transported and grown somewhere else, can it? That, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And like, and like some other commodities we can discuss too, it can only be grown in very, very certain places. And it's extremely labour-intensive. And at the moment, technology can't replace uh, that labour. Um, so it's not just a matter of going, oh, we'll automate the labour. You can't at the moment. Now... You know, five years from now when somebody's watching this, they could look and laugh and go, oh, well, weren't you a moron because we came up with some way to do it, like a drone or something, pick the, I, I don't know, pick the leaf. Um, so, but the problem, though, is, is, is even though I said, okay, one solution would be a futures contract, unlike coffee, which, oh, by the way, tea is the second most drunk beverage in the world. What is the first? Yeah, water. Oh, really? Yeah, followed by tea. Um, now, the problem with trying to find a tradable futures contract for tea is, is unlike coffee, where broadly speaking, there's two types of beans. You've got the Arabica and you've got the Robusta, right? Yeah. So you can provide standardised contracts. The problem with tea is, is there's so many different varieties and blends it's almost nearly impossible to find a standardised contract so that by the time you were done, you would have all these multiple contracts which would then raise the issue of liquidity, right? So if you've got, I don't know, 100 different types of tea contracts, would you have enough people buying and selling those contracts to create an actual liquid market without having, you know, major arbitrage between buy and sell? I mean, that's, that's going really... Really, really deep. So yeah, so that's so basically, it's it's the the body slam that COVID did is now impacting um, the commodity like tea. The problem with tea is unlike a lot of the other commodities, there is no futures contract. And the crazy thing was, it was because up until after COVID, it was considered very predictable. Um, it was in a surplus. And now COVID turned that on its head, but a futures contract wouldn't work for the reasons that pre previously discussed. So. so while we're speaking of my addictions, where is <laughs> cocoa going? Because I have a horrible chocolate addiction. It matches my coffee addiction, actually. Um, I know uh, cocoa prices, uh, you know, they can be quite volatile and they also, cocoa can only be grown in certain regions as well. Yes. Do I need yep. to start rationing my chocolate consumption? Because <laughs> like, I don't think I want to go cold turkey on this product. Well, so you've raised a very good point because what a lot of analysts are saying is that with the price rises, people are going to cut back on their consumption. And I take a contrarian view on this. When it comes to chocolate and coffee, um, a lot of analysts during COVID said, oh, well, since they shut down the cafes in Europe, since they shut down um, you know, the Starbucks, all that, people are going to stop drinking coffee. And I was like, no, people are just going to drink their coffee at home. And I know it's a culture in Australia. Uh, it's the same thing with, like, 
I'm going to pick beer was, you know, major breweries in the United States during COVID, they did great with at-home sales. People did not stop, and particularly through something as majorly socially dislocating as, as COVID. Um, and if you're going to take your choice, I mean, between drinking alcohol or having a chocolate and a coffee, I think you can justify having a chocolate or coffee. Because um, sugar consumption too, I know I'm going up on the rails here. I'm sorry, Shay, but I'll come back. I'll come back to you. I'll come back to your question. So sugar okay. consumption, sugar consumption in the United States was basically in a decline for almost a decade prior to COVID, and then during COVID we got a spike up, uh, which just goes to show you that during times of economic distress, consumers will look for, you know, small treats, small yep. and, and that, that aren't expensive. Um, now, that's where a lot of analysts are hung up on it with the coca spaces. At what point will consumers shut their wallets? And so we have an interesting contrast between uh, Calibut, who sells the premium chocolates, in the world, like world's mm-hmm. largest seller, they did report a drop in sales for the nine month period. However, Nestle, uh, Hershey's, uh, Mondelez, they all reported an uptick in sales. In fact, Kit Kat went completely gangbusters <laughs> for what for whatever reason. Um, so, but what is driving the prices? As you said, you're, you're absolutely correct. Cocoa can only be grown in certain parts of the world. It's called the Cocoa Belt, which is basically 20 degrees north and south of the equator, which cuts right through parts of Africa and South America. In fact, um, it actually originated from South America all the way back, supposedly like Montezuma um, drank a ridiculous amount of cups of hot chocolate a day. And then witches broom in the 80s in Brazil. Uh, once again, a fungal disease completely wiped wiped it out. And Brazil is yet to come back. But that's that, that's that's where chocolate's from. I mean, that's where cocoa is from. One of the key ingredients is from. Um, so now getting to actually answering your question, where Ivory Coast and Ghana, they're literally greater than the OPEC when it comes to oil. Like if you think of OPEC, they don't control the same amount of key chocolate-making ingredient as Ghana and Ivory Coast does, which is about 70%. 70% of the cocoa to make the chocolate comes from these two countries. And what they're, they're currently in the season to harvest the cocoa beans. Um, and the problem is on back of having pretty major droughts, um, they had some labour strikes in the Ivory Coast last year. Now during this season, they had a crap load of rain. And the problem with the rain for the cocoa trees is if, if, if you think of a tree, if you get all this heavy rain, the cocoa actually starts off as like a flower. And if the rain knocks the flower off, then you're done. Okay, so that's one problem. But if you get too much moisture, that now creates like bacteria and mold. 
and this creates what's called black pod disease. And the mm. black pod disease will actually just destroy the uh, cocoa. Um, and so now there's rumours of how severe, how bad it is. If there's one indication, Ghana has actually suspended all future contract sales for the next season, like they've said. Really? We're, we're, yeah, they've suspended. But... Part of is that, that because they also... suspect the price is going to rise or they're worried about stock levels? So it could be both. But here's also the, the other thing too, which, which I think if we're talking about cocoa, I really, really should mention on this um, uh, because it's something I feel pretty pretty passionate about too, is that there's a living income differential that the major confectionery companies are refusing to pay. It's $400 a tonne. And what the confectionery companies have done is basically find ways to backdoor that. So while the European Union is moving towards, we're not going to buy cocoa unless it's sustainably produced, the real thing, because they're concerned about deforestation and child labour, the point I want to say is, is if you actually had your companies pay that differential, then maybe they wouldn't need to use their kids mm. to harvest it. And maybe they could afford the uh, other ways to roast the cocoa beans without having to chop down all the bloody trees and set fire to them. So I definitely, I definitely want, I don't want to talk about cocoa without actually mentioning that as well. Um, so there's you know, sustainable European... Um, growth of the cocoa beans. So part of that also actually may be playing into it is it's becoming political where now they're basically like OPEC, right? I mean, OPEC yep. can just go like they did in the 70s. Um, screw you and your policies in the Middle East. We're not sending you oil. So is Ghana and the Ivory Coast and saying, screw you unless you're going to pay us the differential? Then we're not sending you the cocoa. Who knows? Who knows? Um, and they're also moving towards, they, they realise, much like I think the rest of the world since COVID, is rather than send the raw material mm. to Europe to process it, why not do the value add here in Ghana or the Ivory Coast, right? So that also could be playing into it as well. So there's, there's many, many factors which we, we don't really know, um, but that's the key with commodities is sort of staying on top of the news. How do you sort of, you know, hedge against that? How do you sort of protect against that? Uh, it's, it's not rocket science. But it is time-consuming. But if you love it, then it's, you know. <laughs> you raise some really excellent points in there. And as consumers, we're, we're gobbling up the end product. I can guarantee you when I open a Kit Kat, and we'll, we're not trashing Kit Kat, we're just sticking with this for mm, ease of mm. reference. Yeah, yeah. The last thing when I'm shoving that Kit Kat in my gob in not enough bites Am I thinking about the people who produce that product? Am I thinking about the conditions that that product was put, um, produced under? Um, so you actually have raised some really good um, points here that we don't fully understand uh, how unethical 
parts of the supply chain can be. And that is really important to factor into price rises that we are seeing in our goods. A lot of the agreements that have been struck in the past have really taken advantage of um, people further down the chain that will not who will work for any money better than no money and unscrupulous dealers who represent whatever that labor force looks like um, for just to win market share. Now, right. now that these, um, you know, these, uh, I don't, I'm using the word poorer, but I'm not sure it's the best use of the word here. Now that we're looking at poorer demographics, understand the supply chain and where they contribute. I understand um, how they do want to push for, you know, uh, you called it the living income differential and push for higher wages. And yep. these prices, you are correct, are going to flow up through the supply chain, but it has nothing to do with money printing. It has to do with uh, one particular part of the economy essentially benefiting from wage shortfalls in another part of the global economy. Well, and, and see, so the, the thing for me, Shay, is, is what gets me upset about it is just the complete hypocrisy of it. Is, is Europeans, and I'm not picking on Europeans in, in general, but it's this hypocrisy of we're not going to buy chocolate unless it comes from sustainable, you know, sources. And so mm. all these Europeans are walking around feeling great about themselves going, well, this chocolate wasn't made using child labour. This chocolate wasn't used deforestation. But what they don't understand is, is if they paid the bloody African farmers the money they were owed, they wouldn't need to do that in the first place. And that's the problem. That's the problem. That's how you solve it. Pay the bloody farmers what they're owed and you won't. I mean, if it comes to a simple question of having to feed your family, right, what are you going to do? Are you going to cut down a tree? Every bloody time I am. Yeah. Every bloody time. Yeah, without question. Yeah, no, that's actually, I really love that point that you've made that it, you're right, we wouldn't have to create these initiatives if people were earning adequate wages to begin with, you know, adequate wages obviously relative to the West, but you are 100% correct. We would not be destroying these crops if it, there was a more, um, there were more ethics around wages being paid to the, to the labour. And as you so rightly pointed out, far less likely that child labour would be used if yes. um, the yes. adults working the farm were paid adequate Correct. wages. And to be fair, this isn't just you, this problem isn't unique to Kakoa. Um, drastic underpayment is um, throughout all of the commodities change. Kobo, mm -hmm. gold, uh, Papua New Guinea is a classic example when it comes to artisanal gold mining. Now, this is where I can get a bit ranty and I might not. Um, so no, I'll, go, I'll, go, know, go I ahead, Shay. Oh, no, I won't get too much well, my, in the artisanal gold mining. That might be a different one, but, you know, we slap <laughs> artisanal gold mining on because it reflects small-scale scale gold mining. The reality of, is of artisanal gold mining is horrific conditions, much like you see in the cobalt mines um, mm. in, in of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, mm. So I completely understand the point you're trying to make. I'm just... Um, maybe unnecessarily adding that it's not unique to agriculture. It is right Correct. throughout the entire commodities chain. Yep. Well, that's it for part one of my chat with Sean Mod. Make sure you're following this podcast so you're notified when the next episode drops. That's all for today's episode of Cocktails and Commodities, the podcast where we talk about what rocks are making news, which commodities are moving markets, and the companies trying to get it out of the ground.